chapter 1. This is one of two places where we read of the miraculous events surrounding Jesus' birth. So we're going to begin this morning um, in verse 18. So if you would, uh, let's look at that. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That thus says God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> is it okay if before I get started today, I just say to all of you how good it is to see Sherry in the congregation here today? So, man, so for those of you who don't know, how, has it been about a month now since, since, okay, so about a month ago, Sherry had a stroke, and um, and uh, Ginger and I, you know, just, she, she was here at a ladies' meeting, and Ginger and I went up there to the, to the hospital where they were first kind of evaluating her, and um, we've been praying ever since, and God has just repeatedly, miraculously healed her, and so we're very grateful to see you. I've never, I've never been happier to see somebody walk in than I was this morning, so really great to have you. So we read this story about the the birth, the, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, and we have to realize this. If you're not familiar with Scripture, if you don't understand the Bible or don't read the Bible a lot, I want you to know that there is absolutely no event in human history. I'm talking about from the very beginning of human history till this date today, there's no event in human history that was predicted more frequently and more accurately than the first coming of Jesus Christ. Repeatedly, there, there were there were indicators and things pointing to this event that would come. Uh, Moses, the lawgiver, one of the first instances of this, he predicted that another prophet like himself would arise and that the people should listen to him. That's what he said. He said, when he shows up, you guys listen to him. Similarly, the prophetic writings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel contain numerous predictions of Christ's first incarnational coming. Sometimes he was compared to a plant or the branch or the root of a tree. The idea being that something hidden like a root, you don't see the root of a tree, you just know it's there. Something hidden like a root grows into something that is obvious and unmistakable. As a branch, he symbolizes new life coming forth out of the seemingly dead trunk of Jewish law and tradition. Isaiah called him the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse was King David's father. And the idea behind this being called the root of Jesse is that Jesus would would fully, perfectly fulfill the everlasting kingdom promises that God made to David. He said, hey, your, your kingdom will never end. There's always going to be one of your descendants sitting on the throne. 
And that's really interesting because at the time that that prophecy was made, the the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, uh, or Judah at that time, was hurtling towards destruction, defeat, exile. He was called the branch in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah. Ezekiel called him a plant of renown. And and what they're, they're trying to picture for us, these Old Testament prophets, is that out of the new covenant would sprout something that would flourish, and more than that, something that would bear fruit for all of mankind. And that's what they were trying to portray. That's what they, they wanted us to see through the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The prophets also identified Jesus with images of light or a star. In fact, Malachi, right near the very end of the Old Testament, called him the son of righteousness. Not the S-O-N, but the S-U-N, the son of righteousness. They meant that Jesus, when he showed up on, on, on the scene of humanity, that he would come like a blinding flash of glory and radiance into this dark sinful world that he was coming and no one would fail to notice the impact the difference that jesus would make once he came and completed his work under the guiding influence of the holy spirit the prophets go on to describe him in literally dozens of other ways as well They use human language to describe an event, something that would have cosmic repercussions. They would describe uh, Jesus and his coming to their readers as a suffering servant. They 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 would also simultaneously refer to him as a conquering king. They would call him the chief cornerstone of this magnificent new temple that God was building for himself. And then they would call him an unassuming shepherd who would gently lead and guide his people. And I could go on and on and on and on. But when you see all of these prophecies, you can only conclude that from the very beginning, God's will has always been to reveal and to bring glory to his son. Jesus, I've said this a lot, but Jesus was not God's plan B. God, Jesus, God did not look at the events in the garden when, when the serpent tempted Eve and, and she shared the fruit with Adam. And God didn't you know, hit his head and go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do now? Quick, we need to whip up a plan. Let's get Jesus. No, God's plan was always to reveal Jesus. His plan was always to bring glory to the Son through what the Son would accomplish. That was what he was after. When you see that, when, when your eyes are finally open, the scales fall off, and you see that, you, you're well on your way to understanding the point of the entire Bible. That's it. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about God revealing His Son, bringing glory to Himself and to His Son. That's what the whole Bible is about. It's not about humans. It's not about angels. It's not about devils. It's not about Jews or Gentiles. It's always been about Jesus. That's what the scriptures are about. So Matthew is, in this passage that we read, he's introducing us to the, to the climax of this story that's been building now for, for centuries. This, this story is coming to a head, and he's letting us know that everything God has chosen to do to reveal and to bring glory to the Son and to redeem humanity, all of it is imminent. It's about to take place. It's about to happen. The promises are now going to be fulfilled. And how does he do this? It's really interesting. 
what he does is he also goes to another passage, another Old Testament prophecy of the coming of the, of the Son. And, and he, says, he says this. He, he looks back to, to uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Now, when you, if you were to turn in your Bibles, you can do this when you get home, but if you were to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, you would read this story. It, it's a narrative of something that's happening in the history of the nation of Judah, who, as you'll recall, was one half of the nation of Israel. The nation split and the southern half was Judah and the northern half was Israel. And so at this time that this prophecy is given from Isaiah chapter 7, the, the army of Judah is about to go to war with the much stronger armies of Syria and Israel. And let me tell you, let me tell you they are absolutely terrified. They're, they're shaken in their proverbial boots. But God tells them through Isaiah, the prophet, he says, hey, be calm, be still, keep yourself. He says, he says, relax, because nothing that their enemies had planned to do against them was destined to succeed. Don't you love it when God tells you that nothing your enemies are going to do to you is destined to succeed? It's a great news, isn't it? Next, God does something absolutely strange, if I can say it like that. He tells Ahaz, the king of Judah, to ask him for a sign. He says, Ahaz, my checkbook is open. You ask me for any sign to verify that my promise is true, that I'm going to protect you. You ask me for a sign. He says it can be anything. It can be as deep as Sheol. That's the Old Testament word for the grave. He says it can be, or the place of the dead. He says it can be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. But the king, listen to this, refuses God. He says, he, he gets kind of religious on him and he says, I know you told me to do this, God, but I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to be the one to test God. Now, have you ever known anybody who can be more religious than God? And when God tells him to do something, he says, I'm not going to do it. So then something incredible happens. God says that since this foolish king won't take up his invitation to ask him for an amazing, miraculous, confirming sign that the Lord himself is going to take the initiative. I like that. I like that. Here it is that we find the words that are quoted more than 600 years later by Matthew. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Therefore the Lord himself." Everybody say that, the Lord himself. The Lord himself. What that means that phrase the Lord himself, it means I'm going to do something. I'm not asking you to do anything. I'm going to do it. I'm taking all of the initiative here. The Lord himself will give you a sign. He says, "I'm in charge now, Ahaz. You you done blew it, Aaron." And I am in charge. Says the Lord himself will give you a sign. And this is the sign. You didn't think to ask big enough. I'm going to tell you the way God is thinking about this Ahaz. Behold, the, the virgin will conceive. Whoa, hey, what? Never heard of that before. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now don't miss the theological implication of this little obscure story in the Old Testament. When you and I... As fallen people, either do not know what to do, or worse yet, when we refuse to do what we know to do, God will always take the initiative. God takes the initiative. And that, my friends, is the very definition of grace. It's when God does what you won't do or can't do. God comes through and he says, hey, the Lord himself is going to do it. 
When you were lost, when you were shaking your fist in rebellion against God, when you were pleased to cater to yourself, when you had no higher aspiration than to establish yourself as the only enthroned sovereign in the universe, it was the Lord himself who gave you a sign. And that sign was, is, and always will be Jesus Christ. If you have ever gotten yourself into the midst of a deep, dark pity party and you said, I just don't know if God loves me. I wish he'd give me a sign that he loves me. Guess what? He already has. And that sign hung on a cross and bled for you. That is the sign of God's love for you that he chose. The Lord himself has given you a sign of his love for you. Jesus has always been the sign. We find this in Luke's account of the, uh, of the, the, the incarnation of, of the nativity. He says in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field. Not kings, not princes, shepherds. Low-level, lower-blue-collar workers. And they were keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. Fear not. Everything you've ever had cause to fear, the cause is done for. There's no reason to fear anymore. For behold, I'm bringing you eternal good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just the Jews, but the Jews and the Gentiles. Everyone on the face of the planet is going to benefit from the news I'm about to bring you. For unto you is born this day, this day in the city of David, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying all those promises from the prophets that have come building to this point, he said this is the culminating moment of all of the things that God has designed to do to born this day in the city of David. A Savior has showed up. A Savior has showed up. And list this. Remember what we talked about. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And this will be a what? This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. How is this good news going to appear to you? How is this peace on earth, goodwill toward men, all of this stuff going to appear to you, shepherds? How are you going to know the Savior? You're going to find him in the form of a human baby, wiggling and crying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths. Wow, that's the sign. Hey, the angels are saying to the shepherds, you want to know how much God loves you? Go do what we're saying. Go to Bethlehem, look in the manger, and you'll see this little baby. That's a sign of how much God loves you. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That passage, verse 14, is so powerful. And sometimes we read it and we have nothing better to do than put it on a Christmas card that we're not even thinking. What God is saying is that in our sin and our fallenness and our depravity that we were enemies with God. But because of this sign, this baby lying in a manger, now where you once were enemies with God, there's peace. Peace has been extended, not from you. The Lord himself has given you a sign. He's extended the olive branch downward. We're not trying to fight our way into his approval and pleasure upward. He extended the olive branch. He said, peace on earth to those on whom my favor rests. Some Bible scholars say that this prophecy in Isaiah 7 about the virgin conceiving had a double fulfillment once in Isaiah's time in which the virgin, the word virgin would be more properly translated maiden, 
and ultimately, of course, with the coming of Jesus. Now, both camps make compelling arguments. I'm not here to argue for one or the other. But there are many times in the Old Testament when things that actually happened, actual events that happened in the time of the prophet, had a much grander fulfillment in, in the long term, in the big picture. You see this all through the book of Hebrews, for example. This is particularly pr- true as it pertains to the first coming of Christ dwelling among us. But it's clear for, to me from this passage in Isaiah 7 that God was mainly referring to Jesus in Isaiah 7. And uh, there's several reasons for that. Notice that he does not say the virgin shall bear a boy. She says that she'll, he'll bear a son. He refers to a son being conceived, not just a boy. And who is the son? Jesus is the son, right? He says that the, the announcement, think about this, the announcement of the child's birth and its gender, even before the child was conceived, it makes that a miraculous event. There were no sonograms back then. And, and, and God says this virgin is going to conceive, I, I'm predicting that, and it's going to be a boy. It's going to be a son. She's, he's saying that uh, uh, that makes it a miraculous event. Matthew says also that Jesus' birth fulfilled this promise. He points back to the Old Testament, and this gives divinely inspired credence to the fact that ultimately Jesus was the one referenced. But I want you to pay close attention to something way more important, the title uh, for Jesus that is given by God. He calls him Emmanuel. And the prophetic significance of that name is confirmed by Matthew. Matthew helps us with the interpretation of that Hebrew word that's unfamiliar to all of us English speakers. And he says that it means God with us. Previously in the text from Matthew, we're told that the young couple was instructed by the angel to name the child that had been miraculously conceived in Mary's womb, Jesus. And the reason for that is to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now Jesus was a kind of a Greek or Hellenized version of the Jewish name Yeshua. And Yeshua, which in English we pronounce that word Joshua. And do you see why this is important prophetically? Here's why. In the Old Testament, after the law was given and the people wandered in the desert 40 years, they were never able to pay off their sin debt. They had, they, God said, all of your bodies will fall in the wilderness because of your sinfulness. And so when a new generation came up after 40 years and the death of Moses, who was unable to bring the people into the promised land because of his own sin, God raised up Joshua, who would be Israel's deliverer and lead them into all that God had promised so many years earlier. And just as the children of Israel were unable to enter into God's promise by the law alone, we are also barred from the promise of the kingdom by the law. But we need a champion. Anybody here need a champion? We need a deliverer. We need one to rise up and to lead us in to what God promised. And that's exactly what Jesus did He delivered us from what was keeping us from God's promise and what made us incapable of keeping his law. It was our sin. And Jesus would be to us a spiritual Joshua, for he will save his people from their sins. But how could God so holy ever accomplish so great a salvation for us? He wouldn't simply anymore be enthroned above us, thundering from Mount Sinai. He would take on this title, Emmanuel, and he would be, henceforth, God with us. Eternal God, taking on humanity and walking among us. This this whole concept is stated so clearly and beautifully in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, since therefore the children, that's you and I, uh, uh, humanity, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, flesh and blood. 
that through, the, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And you will call his name Jesus because he will deliver his people. He will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus would be born, take on flesh and blood. He would be born into poverty. He would work for a living. He would know hunger. He would know thirst. He would know anger, grief, laughter, tiredness, betrayal. He would know temptation. He would know wonder. Everything that makes a human human, the Son of God would experience. He would also taste death like all of us. But his death, though physically the same, his heart would stop, his brain waves would start fun- stop functioning. It would be just the same as we all die. But his death, though physically the same, would not be entirely the same as what you and I will one day experience. See, when all of us die, we're receiving the just reward of a lifetime of cosmic treason. For God has decreed that the soul that sins will die. But the Bible says over and over again that Jesus Christ never sinned, making his death entirely different. Jesus' death wasn't a final retribution for a life of rebellion towards his creator because on the contrary, since he was the uncreated and sinless one, his death was substitutionary. What that means is he died in the place of another. Does anybody know who that was? Raise your hand if you're one of those who his death was in the place of. He was the only one capable of righteously dying in the place of others. The result of his death is that mankind's sins, which are many, can be forgiven. Thank God. And that those who believe, those who put their trust in him, can be accepted by God, something that was previously impossible. But now those who have received the forgiveness purchased by his blood can be accepted by God and can live as one with him forever. Not just till the end of this life, but till the end of eternity, which is never be one with him forever. More than that, three days after his death, Christ rose from the dead by the will of the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this act, he defeated death forever. And he now tells us that even if we die, which we all know we're going to die, but he says in John chapter 11 that even if we die, even then shall we live. But his being God with us is more than a redemptive reality. It's also an experiential reality. What that means is that through the gift of the Holy Spirit, as believers, we're assured that there's never going to be a moment in my life when I'm without the constant presence of God. And this has tremendous implications for our lives. Let's listen to how the writer of Hebrews again puts it. Keep your life free from the love of money. What does that have to do with Christmas? Well, listen, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What does that mean? It means this, because Emmanuel, Jesus, is ever present as God with me. I don't have fear what the culture fears. Because Emmanuel is ever-present as God with me, I don't have to grasp for what the culture grasps. And I don't have to get angry about what the culture gets angry about. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And right before Jesus' ascension to the Father, he said that he promised us, in fact, that he would be with us even to the very end of the age. Jesus is not a history lesson or a fairy tale. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. 
when you got up this morning, he was God with you. As you drove to church this morning, he was God with you. As you're sitting here in this congregation, he's God with you. When you leave, he's going to be God with you. When you find yourself on the very bed of your death, God is going to be God with you, and he will carry you to be with him forever. He will always be God with you. And nowhere is this truth seen more clearly than at the Lord's table in communion. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. We believe that through, the, uh, through an act of the Holy Spirit, Christ Jesus is spiritually united with his people as we partake of the bread and the cup. So as you come to this table this morning, I want you to remember that the exalted Son of Heaven, worshipped by angels night and day, became flesh and blood just like you. Though he was perfect, and as I said, praised by angels day and night from all eternity, he took on a human body. He was physically born in the body of a very brave and godly Jewish girl late one Bethlehem night. Remember, though, that don't make the mistake that many of us do at this time of the year. Remember that he didn't remain a cute, harmless baby. He grew into a man who fearlessly and perfectly obeyed his father in all things. Remember that his human hands touched the sick and the lame and the blind and the deaf and the mute, and they were healed instantly. Remember that his human voice commanded the very powers of hell to leave their victims alone, and they immediately obeyed. Remember that his human mind could not be tricked or thwarted by the top religious and political intellects of his day, though they often tried to entrap him. But more than all of that, remember that his body was stripped, was beaten with both the fists and the whips of his accusers. His beard was ripped out by the roots His hands, his feet were pierced by nails, his brow pierced with a crown of thorns, and he was raised on a cross between two guilty thieves for everyone to see, to laugh at, to mock. And one final verification of his death, a Roman spear was pushed between his ribs and into his heart, and blood and water came gushing out. His lifeless body, his corpse, was removed from the cross and placed in a borrowed tomb. But good news. He didn't borrow it for very long. Three days later, he rose in that formerly battered body, and he appeared to more than 500 people over the span of 40 days. After his resurrection, he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where, guess what? The man, Jesus Christ, is still sitting there today, making intercession to the Father for you. And in the words that we read every Sunday before the Lord's Supper, we're told that all of this happened, every bit of it, for you. It was all for you. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. All of it. The coming to us in incarnation, the taking on of his body, the execution of it, the resurrection of it, the ascension in it, all of it for us. And I want to invite you to remember that as you come to the table this morning. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son and that those who waited were not disappointed that he came and redeemed us fully. Thank you, Lord. Paul writes in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's give thanks. And really, don't make this just an exercise in religion. Let's give thanks for the body of Jesus that was given for us, that was broken so that we might be whole, that was, that was stained so that we might be clean. Let's give God thanks this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you for his blood. Lord, you, through the prophet Isaiah, you predicted that, that his, his body being broken, the stripes that were laid upon his back by that Roman whip would result in healing for us. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for the, for the spilled blood of your son, that, that, that though our sins were as scarlet, that, that they became white as snow in the spilling of his blood and our belief in, in the power, the efficacy of that blood. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you that you are making us new every day, that the, 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 the resurrected body of Jesus has ascended to the Father where he is making intercession for us day and night until he comes again and we, we behold his glorious form and rise with him to worship him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. We thank you for all of this, Lord. Lord, we pray that, that as we approach a brand new year, that in this year we would, we would be transformed to become more like you, Jesus, that you would have your way in our hearts and that you would, you would slay all of the things that, that we have treasured, all of our idols would be destroyed by you until we have nothing to worship but you. We thank you for this all in Jesus' name. Now we remember your death once again until you come. And with that we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. In your name we pray. Amen.